Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more podcasting greatness. And you can see I am joined this week, if you're seeing me on YouTube with video, I am joined by guest Stephen Tiger. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Chris. Thank you for having me on your program. Absolutely. Thanks for agreeing to be on. Now, you and I are basically not connected. We have really just met in terms of actually interacting, but I have followed you for a while on Twitter and vice versa, and I have always been impressed by, you know, your sort of, you know, these these, uh, unrelenting sort of view and, and critical thinking about Christian apologetics and about uh, the Christian faith and certain aspects of the belief. And let me intro for my audience here a little bit about Stephen so you understand why I follow him on Twitter and think that his views are important. <laughs> he said he is the author of a book called Doctrine Impossible. And uh, he also has a website called the Rationality and Faith website. And he has a lot of articles on there where he backs up and justifies his his beliefs and opinions and ideas about, you know, Christian apologetics. And I thought, who better to talk to about this? And so let me give you a little bit about what he wrote about his book, and then we will talk to Stephen directly about uh, where he comes from on this and get into some of these Christian apologetics arguments. But he wrote... Doctrine Impossible delves into topics not explored in other critiques of religion. The inescapable self-contradiction in Christian doctrine on sin and salvation. Religion's idolatrous devotion to its sacred texts. And a new look at Jesus' teachings from the perspective of rational spirituality rather than dogmatic religiosity. Although the conclusion that church doctrine on sin and salvation is self-contradictory, although the conclusion challenges Christianity's foundational assumption that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible Word of God, it does not preclude faith in God or learning from the spiritual teachings of Jesus. And I, I wanted to open the show with that quote because I wanted us all to be clear that this is not an attack on faith. This is not an attack on a basic belief in God or supernatural higher power or something like that. You want to believe that? I have no problem with it. People are going to believe what they want to believe. However... I have found it interesting to look at some of the intellectual, academic kind of uh, apologetic reasoning, and this goes back centuries. This has been a habit, you know, within the Christian faith for a very long time to justify or rationalize why these beliefs are logical, rational, fully justified, even scientific. I, I, I don't necessarily go for that. And so if people want to forward an argument like that, going all the way back to, you know, Plato or uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas or whatever, then they are presenting arguments we can t- actually talk about and, and, and cr- be critical of. And this is why I have invited Stephen on my show this week. So, Stephen, again, welcome to my show. And what is your background with this? How did, first off, how did you get into this and ended up writing this book? Well, um, unlike many uh, people, I had no religious upbringing at all. Um, 
I wasn't raised with any uh, hostile attitude toward religion. It just had no particular relevance. But as a young man, when I was perhaps in my 30s, a long time ago, uh, I did become uh, interested uh, in the possibility that there was more to the universe than what I could physically detect and intellectually figure out. And the way that happened, oddly enough, was through my love of classical music. There were certain works that um, I had heard that simply swept me away. They, I could not explain that on the basis of a composer's training. Um, uh, it, it was as if the great composers, as opposed to the merely competent composers, that the great composers could somehow tap into an unseen world yeah. and bring forth magnificent visions of that they expressed through their art. And so I started wondering, well, what if there is more to the universe than what I can see and detect and figure out? And around the same time, I started learning a little bit about the teachings attributed to Jesus, some of which, not all, but some of which I said, okay, now that's really interesting, that's compelling. And so for a period of about three years, um, I journeyed through a variety of Christian churches uh, trying to find faith. Uh, I thought I wanted the certainty um, that, the sense of certainty that Christians seem to have. Uh, I did find questions that did not have answers. I did not find faith. I did find that the certainty that I thought I sought was not a goal to be sought at all. Uh, it was largely a matter of dogmatic conviction. Um, mm. So you observe, you observe that in others. Yes. Uh, and I said, well, I mean, I, I don't want to hypnotize myself into saying, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. So um, I did ask questions. I spoke with other churchgoers. I spoke with clergy. I read and ultimately, there were some extremely basic questions and problems that I had that I never found answers to. And those issues later on, because I wrote notes to myself trying to figure things out, and those issues later on became the book Doctrine Impossible. And the, the title Doctrine Impossible has to do with, as you had um, uh, read from the blurb on my website, um, the fact that church doctrine on sin and salvation is not just unproven, but untenable. Mm -hmm. Not just implausible, but impossible, because there are inescapable self-contradictions that I found. And uh, these, these are the issues that I raised, and I'm glad that you were 
that, that you read the portion uh, from my uh, website that, that you did, because I, I want to um, emphasize what you said. I'm not trying to tell people not to believe in God. I'm not trying to tell people to disregard the teachings of Jesus. I'm not telling people to throw away the Bible. I'm simply saying that the portion of Christianity, Christianity is a huge, diverse group of religions, but the portion of it that is dependent upon the Bible being the authoritative word of God, the portion of Christianity that is doctrinally devoted to notions about sin and salvation, that part of Christianity must be critiqued. And that's was what I was doing in Doctrine Impossible. Excellent. And I'll also reemphasize as well my point that when I believe that it is that it's sort of <laughs> is a loaded language on my channel, but I believe it's fair game <laughs> to go after, uh, you know, Christian apologetics or Christian apologists, because these are people who are not just living a life of faith, and this is what I believe, and, you know, to sort of, you go your way, I'll go mine. These are people who are who are putting serious thought into why they believe what they believe and are forwarding actual arguments, actual, this is true. Here is my truth claims. Here's what the Bible says, and this is why I believe this is true, or this is why it's why it's true regardless of what I believe, you know, is, is kind of how I think the apologetics sort of go, is that this is absolutely objective truth. And I find these arguments to be lacking um, in, in being compelling or convincing arguments, unless you already have a reason to believe them, unless they, you know, unless you already have faith or belief or, and especially as we're going to talk about this uh, inerrant, uh, Bible idea, this, this idea that the Bible is, you know, is make no mistakes. It's perfect. It's everything in it is absolutely true. There's no contradictions. And, um, you know, you know, Chris, one of the things you just said is that apologetics work for those who already believe. Mm -hmm. It's a very crucial point because the main job of a Christian apologist is not to convert non-believers to Christianity. They will get involved in those kinds of dialogue sometimes, but their main task is to reassure believing Christians who may start having doubts and questions. Great to point. To reassure them that, yes, your faith is true, it's good, it's valid, it's solid. Don't worry about it. So we might call apologetics really more like Christian reassurances. Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. Good uh, good point there. So, okay. So I like I said, I've I've uh, my experience with this is really dipping my foot in the pool. I I am no expert on this. I am a uh, I'm a psychology student who studies coercive control and in learning about the history of coercive control, of course, you dive right into organized religion because it has been one of the main you know, the, the the framework of organized religion and the control structures of organized religion, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or Islam or any faith, 
have and, and will continue to be used in authoritarian and destructive ways in order to hurt people. And that's my interest in this field. I, I really don't care what people believe, but I do care what they believe when that belief informs abusive behavior or it, you know, is, is used in a punishing or degrading or invalidating way to strip people of their human rights or their dignity. And also, not, not just uh, the, the oppression of individuals, but the uh, attempt to control society yes. um, through its kind of miscegenous union of politics and religion. Exactly. Uh, it is uh, uh, a very deadly and very dirty kind of relationship. I agreed completely. I think you and I are on exactly the same page on that. Um, it's not, you know, religious belief I have that much of an issue with, but when you get to organized religion, boy, do I have all kinds of problems. So, so it's from that perspective that this field or this subject is of interest to me, and it's why we're, we're talking today. And so I wanted to kind of dive into the headspace of, well, how do people go about justifying, you know, some of the horrible behavior that, that people engage in, even when they are telling themselves that they have the very best of intentions. As, as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so, you know, it is not a matter of, you know, attacking a person because of what they think they're doing or because of what they want to do. It's when they're doing things that are just straight up hurting people, you have to call it out and you have to say, hey, that's not right. So, so that's my interest in this and why I wanted to dive into it more thoroughly is I wanted to talk to somebody who really did understand and study this much more thoroughly than I did. So on that note then, how do we approach, you know, we sort of, if, if Christian apologetics as a whole is sort of a, 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 a group of reassurances of reasons to believe and yes, it's all good and it's all right and you're on the right side of this. Um, how do those arguments basically break down? My familiarity with it is that we go back to people like, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, am I saying his name right? I've heard it pronounced so many it, different it, ways. It's usually pronounced Aquinas. Aquinas. Good. Okay. So, so you have Aquinas and he's, his name is, is, it comes up right away and he's not the only person who's ever put out arguments, but it seems that a lot of modern apologists are falling back to the arguments he basically laid out or made. Um, is that accurate? And how do we think about this? Um, well, I think that um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who is regarded, uh, especially within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, as the greatest scholastic theologian in Christian history, mm -hmm. um, was uh, an enormously dedicated person. His great work, the Summa Theologica, is an encyclopedia of virtually every kind of issue and question that uh, a Christian might have. Um, and um, it is written in the form of, uh, well, here's the question, Here's one way to look at it. Here's a contrary way to look at it. Here is the rebuttal to one way to look at it. Here is the rebuttal to the contrary way to look at it. And here are the conclusions we draw. And that sounds, whoa, that's as fair as you can be. And it is, but with a big caveat. And the caveat is that 
Aquinas as a Catholic theologian was not really approaching the subject with the open-mindedness that the format he used might suggest. He starts out with the unshakable conviction Christian doctrine is true, which is, and in his era, long before the Protestant Reformation, um, that was basically Catholic teachings. That's right. And to set the stage for people, uh, Aquinas was born in 1225. This yeah, is a long time ago. Right? <laughs> um, so, you know, as long as we're talking about Aquinas, um, one, I mentioned earlier that I spent about three years going visiting various Christian churches every week and asking questions and so on. And at the time, one of the questions that I had, I was convinced nobody else had ever thought of this question. Of course, that was nonsense. But at the time, I really thought so. And the question was... How do the saved souls in heaven feel about the fact that there are damned souls in hell suffering forever? Mm -hmm. How do they feel about that? And I was convinced that no theologian had ever said, oh, gosh, we never thought of that. Well, of course they did. Thomas Aquinas addressed that exact question. And uh, one of the chapters in Doctrine Impossible is devoted to Thomas's answer to that that very question: How do the how do the saved, the blessed souls in heaven, how do they feel about the suffering of the damned in hell? Hmm. And it's um, it's quite interesting. Um, Aquinas believed that Thomas Aquinas believed that the joy of the saved must be perfect. It must be maximum. This was his starting premise. They can't be, well, sort of happy. Yeah, we're pretty happy most of the time. No, their joy must be absolute. Now, so the first question was, are they even aware of the suffering of the damned in hell? And as Thomas does in all of his arguments. He calls upon the views of Aristotle, and he calls upon certain excerpts from the Bible. And his conclusion was, yes, they are aware of it. In fact, they can even see it. They don't necessarily have to see it or watch it, but yes, they're aware of it. Why? Because their knowledge that they are spared that suffering increases their joy. And remember, his starting premise was their joy must be maximum. For their joy to be maximum, they have to be, it has to be in contrast to the misery of the damned. So he starts, so his first issue that he dealt with is, are they aware of the suffering of the damned? Interesting. Second, second do they pity? The damned, no. Not because they're cruel, but because if they pitied the damned, it would mean that they are that they would wish that the damned would not suffer so much. 
And if they had that wish, it would mean that they are questioning God's judgment. Cannot be. So no, they cannot pity the damned. And don't forget also that if they felt pity, that too would detract from their perfect joy. Interesting. So, so, the, so the point is that like um, um, apologists have done throughout history, throughout Christian history, is reassuring believers. Um, and, I, and I think that um, he was reassuring clergy, Catholic clergy as well. Um, well, certainly right. at that time, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of other people reading his material. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So, um, so his public, the people he was writing to, his demographic, so to speak, for his published works were people of a like mind to him. The church. Yeah. And here's how to reinforce these arguments, or here's why we're right and why you chose the right path. <laughs> and Okay. So now let, let's, let's, let's take as an example, because hmm. uh, you and I, Chris, we're, we're talking about critiquing apologetics. Yeah. So how would we critique Thomas's perspectives on the attitudes of the blessed souls in heaven who are aware of, but do not pity, the suffering of the damned in hell? Um, if you look at um, portion of... Um, I'm sorry, I can't quote the verse off the top of my head. But at, at some point where Jesus is talking about um, the, the saved, the sheep and the goats, as reference to the, um, the saved and the damned, who is it that he considered the, the sheep damned? and the goats? Yeah. Or the who judgment of the nations? Well, he, he said that who are the goats? Those who showed no pity. Those who showed no pity. And yet here is Thomas Aquinas saying that the saved in heaven do not feel pity. Right. In hell. So what happens when they become saved? Do they undergo some magic transformation that, oh, while they were still humans on earth, mortal humans on earth, they could feel pity. But now they've been improved by no longer being able to feel pity. Right. Wow, what an improvement. Right. It is so contrary to Jesus' teachings. And one of the themes that is um, recurrent in Doctrine Impossible is the disconnect between church doctrine and the teachings attributed to Jesus. Well, it speaks, I, I, and I agree with you completely in what you just said. And to me, the first place my mind went was to the cultural values of the time and the probable, you know, how, how much of an empath was Aquinas? Apparently not much of one, because... If you can simply disregard a whole slot of people because God says they're evil and 
and they must not be destroyed. They must be punished. We must torture these people for eternity as, as their, you know, in their soul form, not in their body form, I guess. And they must, you know, uh, because they made a bad choice or bad choices, they're going to suffer eternal torment and torture at the hands of this beneficent, loving, all, you know, wonderful God. And you and and these two things, you know, don't go together in any in the mind of any empath, in the mind of anybody who understands or can feel compassion and empathy for another human being. And yet we're convinced by Aquinas that this is just shut off and we're better as a result. That, you know, I, even... You know, that, even that, 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 that's very true. And, and you know, when you, you talk about empathy mm -hmm. um, and the uh, awareness of suffering, um, I, I have made, uh, I've written that I do have a belief in what I call spiritual aliveness. Spirituality is a, a difficult term to define. It has slippery meaning. Yep. It's been defined in many ways. To me, it is the antithesis of religiosity. Uh, and, and let me explain why. Doctrinal religion, such as Thomas Aquinas was espousing, pays no attention to individual human worth or human feelings. Mm-hmm. They're simply categories of saved and damned. That's right. So to um, cut off all compassion or empathy for the damned uh, or for human beings in general, even right here on earth, um, it bespeaks religions, doctrinal religiosities, disregard for individuals, they're just labels. Whereas spirituality, as I think of it, is exactly about the sense of connection to other people, such that what I do to them reflects right back at me. What they suffer, I am capable of suffering. It has to do with the links, a web of, that connects all sentient life it, that it's you're making a great point. Yes, I agree. And, and to me, this is what spiritual aliveness is all about. And doctrinal religion is devoid of spiritual aliveness. They sometimes make the claim that religion is spiritual. Well, it's not physical. But the fact that it's not physical doesn't mean, well, therefore, it's spiritual. Well, Spirituality has, has a definite meaning for me. Now, I'm not going to inflict my definition on other people. People use the term as they wish. That's okay. But to me, spiritual aliveness is the diametric opposite of doctrinal religiosity. Because doctrinal religiosity pays no attention to individuals and their suffering and their concerns and their values and their hopes and dreams and fears. None of that matters. That's right. Do you think that that is a reflection, or maybe from my point of view, I should ask, how much of a reflection do you think it is uh, on on the culture of the time that Aquinas was writing in, and the and other apologists who have written, you know, before and since? I mean, he's he we we fixate on him because he is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, one in the world. 
but he um, and his arguments are used or built upon. But how much of that do you think comes out of that that cultural milieu of the time? I mean, you know, I'm, the I'm, idea I'm of a secular. Sure. The idea of secularity in, in a secular world was kind of a joke back then. There was no secular world. It was all religion, right? Well, that, that, that's true. Um, religion was the dominant force in um, European society. Yeah. Um, and especially when it was in bed with the kings who ruled the various realms. That's right. Um, so there was no secularity. There was no, if there was a non-believer, an atheist, they, such people kept their non-belief strictly to themselves. Yep. Um, so I, on the other hand, I think that there is something that is transcultural, shall we say, about the human tendency toward mental and moral laziness mm. and getting to know another person being open to compassion for what another person or a sentient animal is undergoing is experiencing that takes effort it takes openness and um it is easier to shut down by denying other people, other sentient beings, the respect that they are due for the simple fact of being sentient. Instead of treating them with respect as individuals, they simply get labeled. Uh, and it, this is a human tendency uh, and, it, it, and I think it has to do with mental and moral laziness. Um, and, and the labels may be you are religiously right or wrong, or you are racially right or wrong, or you are politically right or wrong, or nationally or culturally right or wrong. And so instead of engaging with each other respectfully as individuals, people who are of the wrong label are just interchangeable agents of wrongness. I don't have to worry about the members of some other religion. They're just wrong religion. That's right. Well, you know? it's it's interesting because the, the othering that's going on here is, of course, I mean, we can look at this through a lens of othering, of us versus them. And and it's very much the case that I, 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 I'm seeing from this that, um, you know, Aquinas is talking from a time where, you know, that the church is all and anybody who's not in the church, meaning the Catholic church, is nothing. You know, if, you, if you're not us, then you are damned. You are the, you are the, the, the weak. You are the people who are going to be destroyed. I mean, That's the, right. Crusades, the, Roman Catholic Church, yeah, the Roman Catholic Church used to have its own saying. There is no salvation outside of the church. Exactly. So they were convinced at a time where nobody was particularly going to push back on this. I mean, it wasn't like you were going to have peasants or serfs or people who were you know, listening to these priests or these these uh, these bishops, you know, the whole structure, 
interpreting the word for them, reading from the Latin Bibles. I mean, it's not like the common man was yet up to learning and reading, and that, that hadn't happened yet. And I believe that what we have here is this analogy or this this sort of uh, this this metaphor that has carried forward in time of of the of the bishops or the the, the priests being the the shepherd and leading this flock of sheep. Uh, I believe they actually thought about people mentally that way as well. I think they actually kind of categorize them as, well, I'm the learned one. I'm the one who knows Latin. I'm the one who's dedicated my life to God. My value is clearly more than yours as one of the sheep. It's my job to lead you to salvation, to tell you what to think, tell you what to believe, because you're just basically too stupid to know otherwise. And I'm actually doing you a great big favor by doing this. Does that... That's what I'm surmising, but is that how you see history? um, Somewhat, but not exactly. I'm I'm not sure that the uh, medieval church, um, or or even the later church, including after the Reformation, um, had such a a contemptuous attitude towards ordinary people. They simply regarded it as their responsibility. Mm. And this is is why they kept the Bible and the church liturgy in Latin. And it stayed that way for a very long time. It was not until the late 20th century that the Roman Catholic Church allowed the Mass to be celebrated in English or or in the vernacular of the the, the nations where where it was uh, being practiced. Um, they kept it in Latin. It was the priestly language. And uh, I think that priests um, regarded themselves, I'm not sure whether whether it was superiority, but it certainly was a matter of greater responsibility because the church was the source of education of priests. Um, they were regarded as the ones capable of interpreting the Bible correctly mm-hmm. without confusing people. And of course the church was this, the, the, the venue through which the sacraments could be provided. Right. And these are the keys to salvation from that era. These were regarded as the keys to salvation. You know, when people talk about the Protestant Reformation and Luther's, um, uh, uh, criticism of the church, um, and he and he was a Roman Catholic, you know, monk. Um, his criticism was indeed about the corruption in the church, which was hideous, no doubt about it. But the Reformation was not just about reforming the church of of its corruption. There were fundamental differences in his theology. Yep. Um, in, he he challenged the whole notion of the priestly right to interpret the Bible. Exactly. Exactly. If anything, he was the one who, through that attitude, eventually opened the door to the entire independent attitude of the United States and all the denominations that we have and all the flavors of it are directly, you know, you can draw a straight line back to this guy going, nope. 
this ain't how it's going to be, you know, and I find that a fascinating historical journey. <laughs> it is, you know. Um, so uh, I, I, I think that the, um, the history of Christianity um, has gone through its various political transformations, you know, from Catholicism, the schism with the Eastern Church, the hideous violence that ensued for centuries when the Protestants broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, just horrifying. Um, but through it all, there were certain core doctrines. The details of the doctrines, they differed a little from church to church, but there were certain core teachings that have been true from the beginning and still are. The authority of the Bible is number one. Okay. The divinity of Jesus is number two. The reality of sin and the need for salvation. All, right. All of these things are absolutely basic and they transcend denominational differences. Right. Within the Christian church. Right. And, you know, before we started our program, I was, you and I were chatting for a moment and, um, and uh, uh, I pointed out that the, the really key point, if you said, well, ultimately, if you had to say one thing, what is Christianity about? It's not God exists. It's not even Jesus is God or Jesus was the son of God. No, it really isn't. Hmm. And that's a surprising and statement the, to some the, people, by the way, what you just said. <laughs> the reason the reason that I can say that, that, that that's not the most foundational thing is that the only reason that Jesus needs to exist and for salvation's sake is because of the notion of sin. Hmm. If there were no sin, we would not need salvation. Yes? Ah. Right. right. Where did the notion of sin come from? The Bible. The Bible is the key to everything. This is why when I say that most of doctrinal religion, this is not limited just to Christianity. This is true of Islam as well. Um, it's even true to, to a degree of Judaism, although the numbers involved are so tiny by comparison. Um, the focus, the, the most fundamental focus is on the sacred book. This is why believers will say, well, God did this, or God is that, because the Bible says so, because the sacred book says so. Right. And it doesn't matter how vile God is depicted committing mass murder. It doesn't matter. They accept it because the sacred book says so. So the, what is the primary faith? The primary faith for most believers is the book. It's not God. If it were God rather than the book, they, then you would hear believers say, well, God is not a mass murderer. And I don't care what the sacred book says. But they don't say that. That's right. They trust the book. They would sooner question God 
then question the authority of the book. And when they say, well, of course, the book is the word of God, that's just circular reasoning. The book is authoritative because it's the word of God. It's the word of God because God wrote it. How do you know God wrote it? You know, I, I mean, it, it, it's all just circular reasoning. Right. But, but, but you have to start somewhere. And the somewhere they start with is the book is authoritative. And if the book says it, it is so. Right. And so, so what does the book say? The book says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the words of Paul. And it is a mark of the idolatrous devotion to the Bible. And I use the word idolatry advisedly because it is primary faith in a tangible object, a book. It's not a worship of the book but it's primary faith in the book such that beliefs about God are determined by, dependent on, and therefore secondary to what the book says. Right. Primary faith in the book, that's idolatry. So, and, but, and, and but, it's ironic but because Steve, the book- how else are we supposed to know what God wants? That's exactly that's exactly what they ask. That's exactly the question, the, the, the response that I get. And there is no answer to that because we don't know. If God were to show up in the sky and say, okay, listen, everybody, here I am. I'm God. I'm speaking to all of you in every language on earth simultaneously. And here's what I want you to know. Here's the truth. Here is what you must believe. Here is what you must do. Then we would know. But we don't. All we have is an ancient compendium of mostly anonymous writings from the ancient Near, Near East in which fallible human beings express their fears and hopes and vengeance fantasies. Uh, and all of that became fossilized into a focus of devotion, a focus of faith for the world. Right. Not God, the book. A collection of ancient writings by fallible men has become the focus of idolatrous faith. Wow. No, not faith in God when you say the Bible says. You're saying, I have faith in the human beings who wrote the book. That's very true. And in fact, you have to actually convince yourself that those writers were not, you know, uh, ancient time sheep herders. They were, uh, inter you know, it relays for God. That's right. And, and, you know, I'm not one of those people who say, well, the Bible is a pack of lies, throw it out. I think that there are some fascinating things in the Bible, really. Um, I think that the um, Genesis story is a magnificent essay on what it means to be a human being. Um, not, not, I mean, not read literally, of course not. Right. Um, right. Well, I there's so many metaphors, there's so much symbology, so many ways these have been interpreted against the backdrop of the different cultures and historical contexts that, the, that these come out of. So, but but so, so so getting back though, it, it is the the attitude which largely 
does derive from the Protestant Reformation. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church did regard the Bible as the authoritative word of God, but they realized that, well, we better interpret it so the right way because otherwise it might be misinterpreted or people might see, well, I don't get it because this looks inconsistent, you know, this section looks inconsistent with that section. But the Protestant Reformation with its, you know, it, it, its sola scriptura tenet, only the Bible, sola fide, only faith. This was the declaration of bibliolatry mm. of Christendom. It was Luther's position was the Bible cannot contradict itself, cannot. It's impossible. It cannot. And to this day, apologists maintain there is no self-contradiction in the Bible. It's the easiest thing in the world to point to self-contradiction. And what is the job of an apologist if not to reassure believers that what looks like self-contradiction isn't really? Right. And here's the, th and here's the thing about um, apologists and their audience of believers who need to be reassured. Believers want to be reassured. They don't want to deal with doubt and uncertainty. So they will eagerly swallow anything that the apologist offers up, no matter how cockamamie it is. And sometimes it is indeed cockamamie. I'll give you a very brief example. Um, sometimes when um, contradictory or inconsistent passages from the Bible are juxtaposed, the answer will be, well, you have to take this in context. And this is in one context, that is in another context. And that's a, a species argument by itself. But here is an example of there is no contextual, di contextual difference. The scene in all three of the synoptic gospels in which Jesus is being crucified between two thieves were crucified on either side of him. This is reported, the exact same scene is reported by Mark and Matthew and Luke. Mark and Matthew describe both of the thieves as reviling Jesus, ridiculing him. Mm -hmm. But Luke says that one of the thieves was penitent. And that thief said to Jesus, the two of them are dying on their crosses side by side. And that penitent thief said, Lord, when you get to your kingdom in heaven, please remember me. And Jesus responds, I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's a fantastically dramatic story. Mark and Matthew don't say a word about it. So, same incident, two completely different versions of how it happened. The Mark and Matthew version, both thieves revile Jesus. The Luke version, one thief is penitent. So I cite that as an example of scriptural self-contradiction that cannot be explained away by context. Do you know how apologists answer that? 
I, I was going to ask because I'm dying to know what they have dreamed okay, up on this. So I, I'm going to tell you what, what the answer was. The answer was Luke was writing at a later time frame than Mark and Matthew. Mark and Matthew wrote before either of the thieves repented. But Luke wrote later after one of them had been had repented and 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 was penitent towards Jesus. Now, the notion that that could be a, an acceptable explanation is you have to picture, first of all, you have to picture that um, Mark and Matthew and Luke were themselves eyewitnesses. No, of course they weren't. Uh, the people who wrote the Gospels were not the people whose names were on the Gospels. But in any case, what it means is whoever the authors were, the authors of Mark and Matthew, they hung around for a while. Jesus was not yet dead. And then they took a lunch break and went away. But Luke, or the author of Luke, stayed there and was the only one there who was there to hear one of the thieves repent. It is so absurd. It is so preposterous. And yet, this, this is the kind of thing that is swallowed by believers who are desperate to not have questions, desperate to maintain this sense of certainty. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that you laid that out because that was exactly the thought I had about how this would probably be explained is, oh, well, this guy, that happened after, you know, at first they reviled him, then this guy became penitent. And I have to ask, okay, that could be a sequence of events. It's a proposal of, well, here's how it could have happened, and yet, if you're a critical thinker, of even you know, of even a slightly doubting nature, you might ask the question: Well, are there timestamps on these on these manuscripts? Because could it have not also occurred the other way, where at first he was penitent, and then Jesus did something to piss him off along the way, and he became good point. antagonistic, good, right? Good, good point. Now, now here is another answer that apologists have offered. And I came across this one only recently. Well, eyewitness accounts are not necessarily reliable. People can witness the same event and disagree. Oh, this is absolutely true. But then that means that the Bible is authoritative because it accurately reports inaccurate accounts. Right. Right. Yeah, you, you, yeah, that argument falls apart real fast if you believe in an inerrant Bible. That's right. That's, yeah, that's that doesn't. Right. those two things don't go together. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about that I was trying to set up at the beginning of the show is like, look, if you're going to start trying to explain these contradictions from the basis, this, this bedrock, you know, idea, which is an arbitrary idea, you just made it up, that the Bible is inerrant. There's no mistakes in this, right? It's the one book that that has been written in the entirety of human history by human beings where no one got anything wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to believe that through all the interpretations and all of the rewrites and all of the, um, you know, translations. It, it, through all of that, through all these centuries, you're going to claim this book right here is inerrant and has no mistakes. Well, then you're basically admitting to a position of motivated reasoning, right? You have to, you are motivated to, in other words, to reason this out in a particular way. Yeah, and what what is the motivation for declaring the Bible inerrant? What is the motivation? Certainty, the need for certainty. Yep, and I'll take it one step further, of course, and I will from my brand of looking at the world, you know, there's a certain degree of control that that affords you organizationally and structurally that is undeniable. When you are the source of certainty, of infallible reasoning that this is always true under all circumstances and there are no exceptions ever, and you get people on board with that, I actually don't care what the dogma is or the belief you're pushing it's going to end up being utilized in destructive ways. That's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, when, when we were um, planning this program and we said, okay, well, we're going to be talking about apologetics and apologist rhetoric. And the, the um, uh, assumption that the Bible is the word of God, the inerrant, infallible word of God, um, I wanted to uh, take a few minutes to um, look at the particular type of apologetics argument that is most directly um, an outgrowth of that attitude towards the Bible, and that's presuppositionalism. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what this was about. Yeah. Yeah, presuppositionalism stymies some people. Because they think that they're going to be debating with, you know, Christian apologist or proselytizer uh, about, well, the Bible says this, but, and how do you explain this, and, you know, and so on. And presuppositionalism is different. Presuppositionalism is the assertion that we need to have uh, a certain set of axioms that we accept at the beginning. And that's absolutely true. For example, the great ancient Greek mathematician Euclid began his enormous compendium of geometric theorems with a set of axioms They cannot be proven. They have to be accepted. They can't be proven because they are the most basic fundamental um, principles. They they don't lend themselves to be proven by even more basic principles because there are no principles that are more basic, such as you can draw a straight line between two points. You can extend a straight line in either direction. These are the kind of self-evident truths that were Euclid's starting axioms. And from those axioms, he built up this magnificent set of geometric theorems. It's gorgeous. 
Yep. So what is the so 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 we agree that we need to have some starting axioms, and and I have no argument with that. You know, to take a simple example, suppose I want to measure a line that's a straight line that's drawn on a piece of paper. So I take a ruler, and I measure it and I say, okay, the line is five inches long. What was my presupposition there? My presupposition was the ruler is accurately calibrated. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I had to start with that assumption. That's not a problem. When dealing with more thought-provoking things than measuring the length of the line, my starting assumptions are facts are factual. Logic is logical. Rationality is rational. They're identities. They're not arguable. They just are. The presuppositionalist apologist says, how do you know facts are factual? How do you know rationality is rational? Prove that logic is logical. And where is all of that leading? To their, pre to their axiom. The Bible is authoritative. Okay. That is their starting axiom which is preposterous because the whole world of apologetics is a shouted declaration of the fact that, no, it's not infallible. If it was infallible, we wouldn't need apologists. <laughs> yes, so, there does seem to be. But, but actually, the key is something you commented on earlier, which is that you need a core of people through time who are going to be the gatekeepers of the sacred lore. They're going to be the knowledge keepers. They're going to be the people who are the interpreters of the sacred texts. Because, because you have a following of people, the sheep, who, and I really, you know, I, I keep using that word because I want to reinforce that, that this, this, this attitude about these people, which is that they don't know. And it's our job to tell them. Now, whether yeah. that implies malice or you know mean spiritedness is not really the point there's still this 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 authority structure of we're the knowledgeable you're not our job is to tell you what's what and so yeah, therefore and, right. you know. and it's no and and it is no coincidence that they take certain uh statements attributed to jesus and say jesus the good shepherd the shepherd of his flock. That's right. Yes. So they, in in equating their role with delivering the message of salvation through Jesus, they too regard themselves, this is church and its clergy, um, they regard themselves as the good shepherds taking right. care of the flock. And, 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 and it is notable, you know, earlier that um, we talked about uh, one of the changes uh, that was associated with the Protestant Reformation was um, that um, the clergy should not interfere between individual believers and the Word of God. That the Bible itself, not how the priests interpret it, the Bible itself is the authority. And yes. it's infallible and it cannot contradict itself. And yet, in reality, well, of course, the, the church still played exactly the same role in the early 
Protestant churches, the Lutheran churches, the Reformed Calvinist churches, uh, they performed exactly the same role as the priests in the Catholic Church. The, the sacraments were different, but it was still, we know, we interpret, we teach you. That's right. That's exactly right. And yet, and, and if you want to, but it's funny how at the, at, at, I, I highlight this only, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to highlight that point you just made is because it itself is one of the arguments for the, <laughs> for how it's not inerrant and it's not perfect and it can't be because, you know, again, if it were, we wouldn't need all of this. That's right. It might be worth uh, just spending a moment uh, talking about the actual meaning of inerrant and infallible. Yeah, sure. Uh, inerrant literally means without error. Yeah. There, there's nothing wrong. Every statement in it is true. Infallible is often used synonymously, but it actually has a slightly different meaning. Mm. Infallible means it cannot mislead the faithful reader. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. And now that's interesting because uh, obviously faithful readers have come to wildly different notions about what the Bible says and means. So what does that mean? Well, I'm a real Christian because I got it right. That's and right. if you didn't get it right, you're not a real Christian because you didn't have the Holy Spirit guiding you to the truth. Bingo. It's the no true Scotsman's fallacy writ large across time for... Of course, of yeah. course. You know, and, and even the whole notion about the Holy Spirit, you know, we can get into Trinitarianism, fascinating topic. Um, but when, when um, believers, they say, well, we read the Bible and we get it right because the Holy Spirit guides us. They say, how do you know that you're being led by the Holy Spirit and not by the devil trying to, do, to mislead you? Right. How do you, how do, you know? What do they again, say? I have faith. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's a little annoying after a while because when you come at things from a critical thinking perspective, you know, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too with this. There has to be, you know, you make the point about axiomatic statements, self-evident truths. I mean, shit, L. Ron Hubbard came up with axioms. Just because you have axioms doesn't mean that, that your subject matter is, is true or that your axioms are even actually self-evident truths. I mean, well, I, 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 I think when we use the term axiom, uh, and, and especially in its adjective form, axiomatic, yep. there is a, an understandable assumption that it is self-evidently true. There is nothing whatsoever self-evident about the assertion that the Bible is the Word of God. Exactly. Nor is there anything, just for my Scientology audience as a comparative here, because I've talked about axioms, but really barely. I've really hardly gotten into it in Scientology with axioms. But there are hundreds of them. And I mean, hundreds of self-evident truths upon which this science, this, this religious philosophy of Scientology is built. And the very first one, by the way, and this might be of interest to you, is that um, there is a thing called a Thetan, that it exists and a Thetan creates. You know, that, that first there is a static life form, and we're going to call it a Thetan. 
it's the very foundational point of faith of all of Scientology. Oh, I really didn't know that. I, I mean, I, my knowledge of Scientology is haphazard at best. No, and totally. But I just, I'm just comparing, I'm just offering it as a point of compare that we can look at L. Ron Hubbard asserting this axiomatic truth, and he did. He did whole lectures about it. This is a point of faith. This is not a point of scientific fact that a Thetan exists. Or the next axiom in Scientology is that a Thetan creates by postulates. In other words, a Thetan wants something to exist. Boom, it exists. Those are two axiomatic statements of Scientology. Hubbard offers them and says they are true, and we are going to proceed forward as though these are true, and we're not going to offer any more proof about it. That, that, you see, that, that, that's interesting because, you know, um, you can uh, um, create syllogisms, um, you know, kind of formal philosophical arguments uh, that start with certain premises. Uh, and the, the point of a syllogism, as I understand it, I am no philosopher, I really am not, um, is do the conclusions follow from the premises? Mm -hmm. Is there a That's logical right. pathway that you start with the premises, you reach these conclusions? Now, the premises may or may not be valid in the real world. Right. But the argument can, we can say that, well, it, it's a valid argument because it follows from the premises. But of course, if the premises are real world garbage, then your conclusion is going to be garbage. It's maybe a valid, you know, you may have reached a, a garbage conclusion in a valid way, but as we they say in computer technology, garbage in, garbage out. Exactly my point. Exactly. And this is why logic, if people who think that logic or reason or critical thinking is just a set of formulas and you just plug in knowledge and it automatically works for you like a calculator or something, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, this is a little more complicated than that. And we're actually talking about really fundamental stuff here in terms of how you put a subject together. And if your axioms, if your basic fundamental truths are unproven garbage, you know, this is where we get the uh, Deepak Chopra goes into this. I mean, with, with you know, with, with his woo about quantum physics, he's taking, you know, these the, 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 the basics of a subject and then applying it to a completely different area of reality, right? Quantum physics and spirituality could not be more separate topics. But you can, you know, draw one into the other and think that you're making true statements. And yeah, it just doesn't there, there, work. A, that, that's an interesting point you raise because um, you, you notice uh, how frequently um, Christian proselytizers and apologists um, appeal to scientific sounding principles. Yes. They're they usually offered in a wildly ignorant way. Yes. Um, for, for example, young earth creationists who say, well, evolution is impossible because it violates the second law of thermodynamics. Oh, please. 
you know, but but you notice the uh, the attempt to turn faith into something scientific. Now, now this really is, is quite revealing, in my view. Mm-hmm. One of the most cherished uh, phrases that apologists and proselytizers use is the jibe, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Yes. I mean, it's brilliant in, in its irony, but, but notice that they themselves, there is, a, there is a subtle denigration of faith. You say, well, you know, I just don't have that much faith. Um, I mean, the, the, the position itself is nonsense, but, uh, but it's interesting how they denigrate faith unwittingly, even though when you ask them, well, what does salvation depend upon? And particularly when you're dealing with uh, Protestants who are the, uh, the ones who are the Bible, besotted, especially in America, who are the ones who are besotted with the Bible and obsessed with doctrine. It's salvation by faith. And they will quote, you know, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. By faith he is saved and not by works. The Roman Catholic Church, incidentally, was, um, and you know, and that, that was um, uh, sola fide from the Protestant Re- Reformation. Only faith. Salvation is only faith. Sola fide. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church recognized the role of works. That was interesting. They didn't deny the importance of faith, but they didn't denigrate works either. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but but you see, even to this day, um, apologists somehow instinctively feel that they have to make their faith rational. Yeah. It has to be consistent with science. That lack of faith has to be inconsistent with science. It has to be logical. And, and so they, they're bringing in all of these non-faith arguments. And why is it all necessary? And we're going to come right back to the most foundational point I said, the Bible. Because if the most basic thing for a believer was, I believe in God, no argument is necessary. No evidence has to be provided. I have faith. This is my faith. God is real. And that's the end of the story. They don't need to prove anything. Why do apologists bring in all of this pseudoscientific nonsense and offer it up as proof? Because they're not enforcing faith in God. They're not supporting faith in God. They're supporting faith in the sacred book. That is a really, really important and I think valuable distinction. And I really appreciate you bringing that up and making it over and over again because I think that's a very important point. I um, I want to ask you about this, um, the doctrine that you bring up uh, about sin and salvation and how this is this is like really at the heart of this thing is is this is just, this should just this is just not not working out so good. <laughs> And I want to ask you, like, what do you mean about this being self-contradictory and that this, this, this basic 
I mean, because we talk about the Bible, you talk about, you mentioned Genesis earlier. I mean, this is where the whole concept of original sin comes from. People interpret this, by the way, in lots of different ways. And I'm wondering, are you know, does your approach to this deal with the fact that it's contextualized in a lot of different ways? Oh, a- abso- absolutely. Okay. Um, you, know, you know, the whole um, third section of my book is about self-contradictions in the doctrine on sin. But as you say, um, it all starts with the Genesis story in the okay. garden. And here is the self-contradiction. Sin is construed as violation of God's law. Uh, God laid down the law to Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yep. And they went ahead and ate it. <laughs> now, it's interesting to look at the difference between the Jewish perspective on this story, and after all, it's from their scriptures. Those who are scripture-believing Jews um, regard Adam and Eve as kind of immature characters who screwed up. They made an error. Christianity, doctrinal Christianity, turned their error into a cosmic crime that would taint all of future generations of humanity and necessitate a savior to come to earth else the entire universe the entire human race would be damned now, what is sin, really? I list 12 different definitions in my book that different Christians have given me over the years. And I say, well, what is sin? It really comes down to imperfection, nothing else. If everyone is a sinner, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. If everyone is a sinner, It doesn't mean everyone is a hideous, vicious criminal. Of course not. But it is true that everyone is imperfect. No one is perfect. That's true. So if sin means imperfection, then it is true that we are all sinners. But imperfection is not a cosmic crime. And here is the self-contradiction in Christian doctrine on sin. How did God create Adam and Eve? Were they created perfect or imperfect? Clearly imperfectly if they committed the crime. (laughs) Okay. Some people have argued, well, anything God does is perfect, so they were created perfect. That does not work because perfect beings would have acted perfectly. You can't say... Well, they were created perfectly, but they acted imperfectly. If they acted imperfectly, they're not perfect. (laughs) Okay, so they were created imperfect. Now, the apologists, and I had these discussions years and years ago. Um, The apologists will say, well, they didn't have to be perfect. That's not the issue. They just had to obey. Mm -hmm. 
you don't have to be perfect to obey a command. That's true. I mean, that's kind of how I thought about it. Okay, but imperfect beings will act imperfectly at some time or another. You cannot say that an imperfect being will act perfectly throughout the entirety of life. Because then they would say, well, that person is, then in that case, there's no functional difference between perfection and imperfection, and that's absurd. So why was it that on this first occasion, when Adam and Eve were given an instruction, when they had no prior experience with receiving prohibitive instructions, don't do that. They had no experience with it. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know what the consequences were. God warned them that they'll die on that day. But of course they didn't. So, you know, what does that mean? Um, Well, we can interpret dying, I suppose, as a change in state rather than a body death, right? So, So, okay. So why, though, that on this occasion when it is the most likely that being imperfect as they were, they had the greatest chance of screwing up because they had absolutely no prior experience with a prohibitive law and the need to obey. That's right. So that this was the most likely time when they would screw up. So they screwed up. In what sense does that taint all future generations of humanity. Exactly. I'm on the same page with you on that question. It makes no sense to me at all. It's completely arbitrary nonsense. Okay, now here's another point. And I mentioned that there's a disconnect between some of the teachings attributed to Jesus and church doctrine, Mm -hmm. largely derived from the writings of Paul, not from the teachings of Jesus. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says, not everyone is a sinner. Yes, he says that. Really? He said, I, yes, he does. He says, I have come for the sick, not for that. Just as a doctor doesn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. I have not come for the righteous, but for the sinner. So he recognizes that not Everyone is a sinner. And the apologist's response to that, which is, well, yeah, there are people who don't regard themselves as sinners, but they are. Nope, does not fly because Jesus made the analogy to a physician. Was he saying that everybody is sick, but some people mistakenly think that they're healthy? No. Jesus made the specific analogy to the fact that there are some people who are healthy, they do not need a doctor. Do and they some... ever interpret that when they, you mentioned the word righteous there. Do they, there is the righteous and there are the sick, right? Does the, Do they ever interpret that as the righteous being those who have accepted Jesus in their heart and therefore are saved and they are no longer in the state of being sin sinners? That, it's possible that some of them do. Okay. But, Uh, But um, note that that would be a very strange interpretation because when Jesus says the words, I have not come for the righteous, but for sinners, if that was what he meant, 
he would say, those whom I have saved are now righteous, but there's still lots of others I need to save. Right. Right. I agree with you. I agree with that interpretation. I just thought I'd throw it out because I was wondering, do, do people think that way about that? No. And elsewhere, in, in a different portion of the synoptics, Jesus is quoted as saying that there is more joy in heaven at one sinner who repents than at 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. Wow. Okay, so that just doubles down on, on what you're saying. So, so the notion that sin is a universal cosmic crime right. that warrants the damnation of the entire human race, right. except for those saved through faith in Jesus, is completely at odds with the words attributed to Jesus. Yes, we can certainly well, say that as a certainty. Why is that surprising? Jesus was a Jew. There was no such thing as Christianity in his lifetime. The, 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 the church that emerged shouting his name would have baffled him. Right. He thought like a Jew. Because he was. Right. What about the new covenant that he preached? His audience that he first spoke with were Jews. He was a Jew speaking to other Jews. He was preaching the coming kingdom of God. The need for repentance, for reform. He wanted ancient Israel to once again be a light unto the nations, that its laws would serve as a model of justice and mercy. The notion of Messiah in ancient Israel was a human being, not a God-man, but a human being who would perform, who was anointed to perform some special function for God. Mm. That you see Cyrus the Great is identified specifically in Isaiah. Cyrus the Great is identified as Messiah because he freed the Jews from the Babylonian captivity and allowed them to go home. He's stated to be a Messiah, or in Greek, Christos. Okay. The anointed one. Was Jesus a Messiah? If we think that his word, that his anointed mission was to preach a message not of a new covenant, but of a renewed covenant with God. Perhaps we could say that, yes, he was a Messiah in that sense. But the Christian Messiah, the divine being who saves humanity from sin and damnation, is a completely alien concept to the Jewish population of that era. It was completely alien to Jesus. Right. Interesting. So we're basically saying that that was a new interpretation of the events, maybe yes, 300 years after the fact. <laughs> by these it was anticipated. The ancient Israelites anticipated that there would be a Messiah king okay. who would free them from oppression, Roman oppression, who would rebuild the temple. 
who would usher in an era of peace and justice under a line of kings descended directly from King David. That was the Messiah King that they that they foresaw. Had nothing to do with sin and salvation in a next world. Interesting. Invention. Interesting. Well, this is fascinating stuff. I um I just wanted to kind of you know get a get a an interpretation or a, a an overview of this, and I think. I, I think in a lot of ways we've we've sort of done some of that in this show in terms of defining what apologetics is all about and some of the basic, you know, problems or fallacious reasoning going on in this. And I, I am only I'm only sort of moving toward closing the show off, not because we are at all complete on this topic. We've only scratched the surface of it, but I wanted to sort of uh, uh, do that. Uh, with this show and um, open the door to the possibility of examining more apologist arguments and sort of debunking or taking them apart with logic and reason. I, um, I'll, I'll, you know, I really do see how this, uh, you know, people have YouTube channels where this is all they do. They, they, they take apart, you know, apologetics arguments or, or hypocritical statements made from the Bible or, or people claiming to be, you know, saying, making truth claims based on the Bible. And I, I'm not really moving in that direction with my channel or anything. But I, like I said, I wanted to open this door because I find that the fallacious reasoning underlying this is, is a window to opening the door to changing hearts and minds and to, and to de-radicalizing people who use this stuff to justify, you know, atrocities. And unfortunately, and, that... And, and I appreciate that orientation, that effort, and I, and I share your perspectives on it. You know, as I mentioned, in Doctrine Impossible, I talk about the disconnect between doctrinal Christianity and some of the teachings attributed to Jesus. And, it, and I said, it is not my goal to tell people, don't believe in God, don't have faith in Jesus, throw out the Bible. That's not the goal at all. The goal is to offer an alternative to the kind of toxic hyper-religiosity that characterizes especially American Protestantism, yes. Protestantism uh, today. Uh, there is a way to look, to, to be a Christian, but a Christian, if, if you think of a Christian as somebody who follows the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings of a church, about Jesus, but what did you, what does Jesus really mean? Some of the teachings, and I discuss, I discuss some of them in the book, um, are really quite challenging uh, and worth considering. Uh, so, you know, I, I I open myself to some criticism from some hardcore atheists uh, because I recognize spirituality as something that I regard as real. Uh, it, it's the opposite of religiosity, but it's no more provable than religious assertions. Uh, and yet I think it's real. And I wanted people who believe to not think, well, if I give up my belief in the Bible, my faith in the Bible, what am I left with? You could be left, they could be left with a great deal that is much more sensible and humane and consistent with the teachings of Jesus.
and and I think that that's that that was why I hoped that the audience, the readership of Doctrine Impossible, would not be limited just to atheists, but to thoughtful believers who are dissatisfied with some of the toxicity associated with fundamentalist religiosity. There you go. Well, I I am totally on board with that. And I think that as time marches forward, we're seeing more and more young people rejecting the dogmatic interpretations and and authoritarian sort of, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt not sort of dictates that we see coming out of certain churches. And we see this declining membership and declining attendance in Christian um, churches, you know, here in the United States. And I think that this authoritarian overreach on their part and this sort of dogmatic insistence that it's our way or the highway and we're the only ones who can interpret this book for you is is a good part of that. I think people had to have a negative, you know, nah, I don't think that's such a good idea. So you are so we're we're really offering is a little bit more of a sensible interpretation of this stuff, not don't believe, you know, and as we've said many exactly times. So. Exactly yeah. so. Yeah. So so on that note, Stephen, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about your work and talk about where you're coming from on this on my show here. And I don't know that this is the only time we're going to do this. I, I think that there are... I, I would very much welcome, if, if you can stand it, <laughs> I would very much welcome uh, an opportunity to continue this dialogue. Uh, and I really appreciate your um, having me on the program and... Uh, yeah. uh, and sharing a, a most enjoyable conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, because I, I enjoyed the hell out of this. And I'm really only cutting it short for the time. Because like I said, we could go. And I and I realized this. I was like suddenly like, oh, I want to ask him about this and this and this. Wait a second. This is going on too long. So, so that's the only reason we're cutting it off right now, folks. But I would love to hear from you out there, those who have watched or listened to the show here. Uh, please do give me your feedback on this. I want to know if you want me to dive more into this and talk more with Stephen and um, and other authors out there. I've had Anthony, Andrew Seidel on my show about One Nation Under God and that whole thing. We've done that in the past. And I, you know, and I don't want to just be a religion bashing channel, but I, I have very good reasons to poke holes in some of the belief sets that exist out there because those beliefs inform atrocious behavior. We yeah. see it all over the world. You know, it's not just in the United States. In fact, we see the most egregious examples outside the United States. But we see enough extremism going on within our shores here, within our borders, that it is vital that we pay attention to this stuff. And that's, that's the yeah. point. So on that note, thank you again, Stephen, and uh, I will look forward to your comments in the, uh, uh, on YouTube here, folks out there. And of course, as always, I will end off with if you are digging my show and, and think it's worth something, then you know, show me some love through Patreon or through PayPal. It is always appreciated and very much needed. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to us, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.